This is the Only One Shot Golf Podcast, and I'm your host, Jim Gallagher, Jr. Special thanks to Steve Azar for allowing us to use his music. You can find Steve at steveazar.com. Don't forget to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts and get your copy of Only One Shot. That's available at Amazon, written by VJ Trolio. Today I have my good friend and Golf Channel colleague Tom Abbott on the podcast. Tom grew up near London, over in the UK, and headed over to the States to play college golf at Mercer before beginning his career in broadcasting. And we've seen him on the big break, the LPGA, and many other uh, Golf Channel shows and coverages. So let's get Tom on the uh, line and hear his journey from London all the way to Macon, Georgia, and now with the Golf Channel. All right, let's welcome my good friend, Mercer University Hall of Famer, Golf Channel analyst, host, a little bit of everything, Tom Abbott. Welcome. Jim, it's great to be with you. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Uh, we've seen you on the big break. You do all the LPGA. You do about everything. You can you can handle everything. But let's uh, go back in time. You grew up in London. Tell us a little bit of your childhood and maybe how you got started playing golf. Yeah, I grew up in South London, which is actually a, a really good spot for golf. There are a lot of really nice golf courses in the county of Surrey in, uh, you know, south of London. And um, and I and my dad says that about, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I said to him, I, I want to play golf. Dad, can we go and play golf? And it was just kind of out of nowhere. And so I have no idea why I said that or, you know, where the idea came as a 10 or 11 year old boy to, to play golf. Um, but I did. And uh, I, the, I had a neighbor, uh, his parents about the same age as my parents, and they're still neighbors today in the same street in South London. And, uh, and he started playing the game at the same time as me. His name's Adam G. And uh, Adam became a, a really good player, but we, we sort of grew up uh, playing golf together and he, uh, he actually uh, lost in the final of the British Amateur. He was one of the top-ranked amateurs in the world. He went on to play on the European Tour. So his golf career certainly went on a different projection than mine. But, you know, I had a, I had a really good start in the game. And I think growing up playing with, with a buddy and, you know, sort of learning the game together is a, is, a, is a great way to do it. Don't you think that's important for kids to have someone, you know, a couple buddies I know it is for my girls. There weren't many girls playing, so to have someone you can go out there with, because it's a social game. I think for kids, I think if they can get a two or three, and plus you were playing against a good player, that had to help you uh, playing against a good player and kind of strive to maybe get better yourself. Yeah, I think it's a really nice way to start in the game, and golf can be very intimidating, and it can be a very intimidating environment if you've not grown up. I mean, I I wasn't a country club kid, if you like. I didn't. My parents weren't members of a, of a golf club or a country club, and so I didn't really grow up in that environment. So I think it can be quite intimidating. But if you, if you do have a, a buddy that, that you can start playing the game with, I think it's a, it makes a big difference. And actually, it's something that I tell a lot of, um, a lot of people in, in London who ask me about starting to play the game or, you know, in the U.S. as well, but it's especially women. If, you know, I have friends... Um, a female friends who who will say, you know, I, I think maybe I should start playing golf, you know, and I'll say, well, my advice would be to to find a friend who 
who ha- doesn't play golf and, and is interested in, you know, starting a new sport and kind of learn it together, you know, maybe get uh, group lessons with an instructor and it's the two of you and you're having a good time and it's, you know, you can go and get a drink afterwards. You can go go to work. You know, you can go after work and spend an hour at the driving range with the instructor and have a laugh and 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 then go out for a drink or a meal afterwards. That that's a really good way uh, for young people or professional people to start playing the game. And I think it it's the same for juniors. You know, if you start playing with a buddy, um, you learn the game together, and it's less intimidating and it makes it fun. You know, it makes it fun like you're just hanging out with a friend. So. But yeah, I think it's a really good piece of advice for people starting out. Yeah, that's great advice. And a lot of my, you know, listeners of the podcast, it's kids that are. Wondering, how do they get their kid going? How do they get them started? And then we have the event all the way up to college kids listening and their parents because uh, it is it's intimidating because you know in other sports you can kind of get away with it because you've got someone else picking up the slack. But in golf, you're out there by yourself. Did you play any other sports growing up? Not really. I mean, I played a little bit of cricket. But I wasn't that good. I mean, I wasn't really an athlete um, in the sense of you know playing a lot of team sports. So, so being able to 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 get into golf and and play something that was uh, I wouldn't say it came naturally, but it was certainly something that I had a talent for. So, you know that that made a big difference for me. No, but I, I didn't really play many other sports growing up. But you got a little bit better. Obviously, you came over to the states to play golf at Mercer. How did you get to Mercer? How did you find Mercer, and why did you decide to go to school there? Well, when I was uh, probably about 15 or 16, we took a family uh, vacation to the south. We went to to Georgia, which was not something that a lot of British families did, Mm -mm. and they still don't today. But, you know, it's a great spot to come over and, and, um, and visit, and we... We stayed down on St. Simon's Island, and we met a family that lived in in Macon, Georgia, which is where Mercer is located. And so uh, that was kind of my first introduction to to Macon. And the funny thing was, I thought they were saying bacon when they they said they were where they were from. And I thought, well, that's a bit of a weird name for a town, you know, but whatever. And it wasn't until we were driving back to the airport, as you drive back up, um, up what is it, I-16, and then and connect with 75 mm-hmm. to go from Macon to it. And we drove through Macon, and I was like, oh, it's Macon. This is what they were talking about, <laughs> not Bacon. And uh, and so so I kept in touch with that family. And when I was looking at going, uh, go, go, coming over on a, on a golf scholarship in the States, which was you know a popular thing to do in the late 90s, and still is today. Um, I, I was in contact with that family. We stayed in touch, and they said, "Oh, well, you should come and you should come and look at Mercer." And I'd never heard of Mercer, and so uh, I went over there and I stayed with them. And um, and I and you know I kind of fell in love with the the campus and the the golf courses around there, and ended up you know spending four years at Mercer and getting my degree. So it's kind of a nice story, and I'm still in touch you know, with that family, and I see them uh, probably once a year. So it's kind of a nice story, yeah. And I really, I was lucky to, you know, be able to, to find a spot at Mercer and, and um, you know, and, and get fully emerged in, in a college career. Yeah, because a lot of kids come over and they don't know anybody. They, a lot of them, when they're being recruited, don't even see the campus till they first step on it as a freshman. So for you to have a family there, that had to make a big difference. But you mentioned golf courses. Uh, when you look at the UK, what are some of your favorite courses? Do you like the Lynx style or Parkland style? What, what, what are some of your favorite golf courses? 
Well, I grew up playing a Parkland course. The first course that I ever joined was a course called Leatherhead, which was, you know, built in the sort of 1920s, 1930s, I think, maybe even earlier than that. Uh, and that was a Parkland course. And there are a lot of Parkland courses in Surrey, which is uh, in the county where I grew up in South London. And so I think I was, you know, that, that because that was my first sort of foray into golf, um, uh, that, that, that is a, a style of golf course over there that I feel more comfortable on. I then joined the Walton Heath when I was in my mid-teens, which is, you know, a famous Heathland golf course um, in that area. And I'm still a member there today. And Heathland, if, if people aren't familiar with it, is kind of inland links. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the soil is quite uh, sandy, like a, like, a, um, like a Lynx golf course, you know, dries out very well. Um, and it's quite open, so it's open to the elements. Uh, you know, a few pine trees and, and gorse bushes dotted around, but it's pretty it's pretty open to the elements. So that's kind of an in-between. And I've become more accustomed to Lynx golf, having played some of the great Lynx courses over there, but I wouldn't say I'm 100% comfortable with it. Having lived in Florida, I'm a little bit of a fair-weather golfer, and it's <laughs> tough. You know, you get some tough days on the Lynx courses. And I've got some good friends that are members at, at Lynx Sports, and I'll go down and play with them, you know, and they, they'll go out and play in the elements. And I think to myself, all right, you know, we're doing this for fun. Do we really want to go out there when it's 30 miles an hour and the threat of rain? But, um, and I think you've really got to, it, it, it's just such a different game, uh, Lynx Golf. And one of the things that I always think is, was interesting is that Tom Watson, who was such a great player in the open, he didn't really adapt his game as much as you would think. I mean, he still kind of played the ball in the air, but he just really knew the elements very well, and he knew how to get it round, um, and obviously being an amazing golfer. But if you go and play with, with guys that play against golf, you know, they, they play a lot of their game is along the ground. Mm-hmm. Everything is along the ground. So it's a very different way of playing golf, and I think it takes a bit of an adjustment. And that, So I'm not as comfortable as playing on Lynx golf courses, but I've been very lucky to play, you know, the great courses around around the UK, and um, you know, and there, there are so many. But I, one thing that I would say to people is, if you've done if you've done the the Ireland golf trip, and if you've done the Scotland golf trip, you know, look at playing around the London area. You know, there are so many really beautiful inland courses around London that that people don't ever think of going and playing and then obviously you've got London right on your doorstep um, you know for, for going out for meals and, and entertainment in the evenings but you know I grew up around that area and I'm, I'm passionate about the golf around London you know Sunningdale Wentworth Walton Heath Warpleston you know Woking West Hill the, the you know New Zealand Club the, the list goes on and on and on Swindley Forest I mean it's there are so many good courses yeah, I think that's the thing with guys go on these trips. They they play these courses that maybe maybe many never heard of, and they're going, "Man, this was awesome! This was awesome!" And I've played Walton Heath, played the Senior uh, Open there, the British Open there. So uh, it, it is a wonderful golf course. But you know, over here in the states, we kind of think we have Lynx style golf courses, or we try to, but we keep everything so soft. Uh, and if you don't have the proper soil, like the sandy soil. Uh, it's not a true links, but uh, what were some of the adjustments you had to make when you got to making with the golf courses over here uh, in Georgia when you traveled around playing college golf versus uh, back home? Well, I, you know, growing up in the UK and playing all my golf in the UK, I you can you don't you didn't at the time have to hit it that far because in the summertime the fairways really run out, and so you go from 
playing golf in the UK in August to, to Georgia in August, you know, it's a massive difference. And the, the biggest change for me was the distance. You know, I, I didn't hit the ball far enough to be able to compete in college. You know, you get, you get to a golf course and there's zero run on the golf course. And, uh, you know, what <laughs> <laughs> is going on? So that was the biggest change for me. And in terms of my goal, you know, I was the okay player, but I, I was, you know, a one or a scratch. But, um, and I had some good rounds of golf, but I, I coming over to play in college, I, I needed to start hitting the ball a lot farther. And I started hitting it um, off target. That was kind of. So short and crooked is not really a good uh, combination. <laughs> and so, you know, that, you know, trying to get, trying to hit it longer and it starts to go sideways. And, um, and that was my biggest issue when I played college golf. That you know, it was, it was not, it, it wasn't a good transition for me. And, um, you know, and I think, you know, I probably didn't have the best um, coaching at the time. You know, I'd worked with, a coach back in the UK who I'm still really good friends with, Nick Bradley. You might see him on some of the, those squares uh, commercials that he's popping up mm-hmm. on at the moment with uh, with uh, Nick Fowler. Um, so, you know, so, so we had worked together for several years at the time, and then when I came over here, you know, I wasn't able to, to see him, and, it, you know, we didn't have the video lessons like you do now. You know, you just jump on FaceTime with your coach and have the lesson basically, you know, 5,000 miles away. That wasn't really an option when I was playing college golf. So, so I think that was the biggest issue for me. I didn't really have the coaching. I didn't really have the the transition to move across and and be able to adapt my game to to um, to college golf. My short game was pretty good and putting was good. But I think once you start to hit it sideways and you really feel like you've got to hit the ball a long way, it puts a lot of pressure on your game if you're not a player that has that distance. And then that kind of feeds through the rest of the game, doesn't it? Because you lose confidence. So, um, so that was kind of my biggest issue. And I, I don't know, you know, how you rectify that. I don't know. Today, it's, it's spending a ton of time in the gym and and trying to get more speed. But I think those players that come across and play college golf now, who are going to be competitive, you know, they hit the ball a long way. Um, and that wasn't. I mean, that was it was starting to be that way in the early 2000s, but it wasn't necessarily the big the big thing then. And it's such a big change now, Jim. Oh, absolutely. Workouts. We didn't work out. I went to Tennessee. We didn't, you know, we, if it was, it was on our own. Now these guys are up at 530 in the morning, these ladies and uh, all working out three, four, five times a week and, and trying to get that speed. But you mentioned he still has a great short game, by the way, folks. I, I've, I've witnessed it. <laughs> and he does. When they put want to put sprinklers out, they use his drives because he can go right down the middle if you need. If you want to have them on both sides, uh, they can use Tom's drives. But uh, you get over there. You major, I think, in media business. Did you want to get into the broadcasting side, or is that just something that kind of came upon once you were over at Bursar? Yeah, I didn't really have a lot of idea what I was going to do when I first went to Mercer. And I think... Um, media just kind of fell into my lap. It was something that I that I that I came across kind of out of nowhere in a sense. I went on a field trip to CNN mm. when I was probably a sophomore, I think, and and I was and, we, and there was this panel show for for college kids, and they did it in the atrium of the CNN center. And I remember being on this on this show, and you know I was plucking up the courage to to ask a question live on CNN and I did 
and I can't even remember what the, what the topic was or what we were talking about. But um, but it, it you know that was the first moment where I thought, wow, this is this is quite a rush, you know, being on live TV. This is kind of fun. And my mom worked in television, and so I grew up around television studios from a very young age. And so that sort of clicked, you know, having had that background, the family background in TV, and then the thought of, wow, maybe I could do this in college. And that was kind of the moment where it sort of clicked for me. And then I I started getting into doing student media and, and learning about the business of, of television and media. And, and that's kind of how it started. And then I uh, worked, you know, do, you know, covering sports and, and, uh, and you know, uh, athletics at Mercer. Um, and, and yeah, and it was a, a learning process for me. And I, mean, I didn't really know anything about American sports. And I, a, a lot of people would argue I still don't. <laughs> so, um, and so it was quite a, a learning process for me to learn these sports and the business at the same time. But it was something that I was passionate about. Um, and having that golf knowledge, you know, it all kind of came together for me in the end. Did you start the uh, on-campus television station? Did I read that right? Or I on- did. Really? Yeah, no, wow. I did. Yeah, we had, yeah, we kind of kicked it all off. We didn't really have anything uh, at the time. There were a couple of other students that were interested. And so we we started an on, on-campus television station. And um, and it was great. You know, it was good fun. You know, you just sort of dived in and worked. I mean, that was some of the hardest I ever worked, you know, working all hours of the day and uh, studying and then doing this at night. And um, and today they have a similar sort of setup there at Mercer, which is a bit more professional. And they um, have the games, I think, on ESPN 3 or whatever. I, I, you know, you can find it digitally on ESPN. And that's all done by the students. So that was kind of the beginning um, of, uh, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of what we what we did 20, 20-something years ago. It's amazing. And then you get uh, a local affiliate. And I don't think people realize but the Loki affiliate, uh, they're out there, they're filming, they're cutting it, they're you know, writing the script, and then they're pr- putting it out on TV. It's, it's a, a one-person job that usually has four or five people doing it, and they don't make a lot of money uh, on that local stage, but you, you did that. But uh, did you intern anywhere, uh, I guess, after school? Yeah, yeah I interned um, in Atlanta, Um at uh, WGCL, which I think is uh, CBS 46. Um, and so, yeah, I was there. I interned there for a couple of years. I would drive up to Atlanta and, and back down to Macon, which was a you know, pretty good drive. And, um, and but, but it was great. You know, I got sort of, I got a, a sense of how the, how the local TV market worked. And I actually interned for the European tour, European tour production during the summer. I spent three weeks um, and did three different events for them, you know, with the TV production. And some of the people that I, I remember walking, you know, be, getting yardages and, and clubs for, um, um, for Richard Boxall mm-hmm. on the ground at an event, you know, and they, and now, you know, you go to events and those guys are still working. So that was kind of cool, um, to do that in college and, um, yeah, so I did a few different internships. I mean, the internships were when was the time when I learned the most. I mean, I think you can you can learn in a classroom, but it's the real world experience that that puts you over the finish line. And that was the case for me. I mean, I I had wonderful experiences, and a guy called Mark Harmon, who was 
uh, a sports anchor in Atlanta, interned with him. And Mike Tirico had been his intern 10 or 15 years before. Wow. So my, Mike and I actually interned for the same guy, and we joke about that whenever we see each other. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It is cool. What stood out in those internships that you maybe that you really said, oh, this is something I really learned and I can take forward? You said you had a lot of things. Was there one thing that kind of stood out the most? I think, you know, you get a, a, a gut feeling that you're making the right decision. That was always the case for me. It was something that I was really passionate about, and I had a, you know, just a great feeling that this is, this is something I really love to do. Um, so I don't know if it was one. I mean, I always loved the thrill of being on air, you mm-hmm. know, the, the thrill of being on live TV. And I think that was, there was nothing to really fill that for me, you know, that, that feeling of being on TV. And it's still the same today. Um, and I think there's a, in television, there's a, it's very difficult to get somebody to put you on TV. There's a big decision in, in the industry. And that decision is putting putting someone on live television, and it takes a, it takes a lot of effort to get to the point where an executive says, "Okay, yes, we're going to put that person on a, on our channel to represent us." And I think when you're watching TV, you just sort of assume that it all comes together, and you don't you don't really think about it. But behind the scenes, there there are a lot of decisions that go into it, and a lot of people that come together and say, "Okay, you know, we're going to put this person on at this time." And so getting to that point where you're the person that they decide to put on is, is quite a thrill. And I think um, once you're in that position, there, there is a, you know, there's a sense of responsibility. And so, and so I sort of really you know, enjoyed that process and getting to that point. And, um, you know, I'm still very lucky that they, that they still think that it's okay to put me on tv <laughs> well you're very good at your job i can tell you that i've worked side by side you can do anything i don't know if you could be a walking announcer because i don't think you want to be out in the heat like we were uh at paul <laughs> springs uh for the ana i don't know if you'd really enjoy that part of it as much but uh where was your first job as an anchor in charlottesville virginia I went to work in Charlottesville, Virginia, after I graduated at a small TV station that was just starting, and literally just starting. Wow. And, uh, and so, yeah, I went up there, I packed up my car, and a buddy of mine from, from the UK came over and, and helped me move. Um, we went kind of on an adventure for a week and drove up to, to Virginia, and that, that was it. I, I settled in to Charlottesville, not really knowing anything about what I was doing, and certainly didn't know anything about uh, sports in Virginia, and, but I learned pretty quickly. I got to go to UVA games and Virginia Tech games and um, and high school sports, you know, and I, I always thought, well, not many people know about high school sports in Virginia if they've never lived there or had any kids to go to school there. So I, I didn't really feel like I was at that much of a disadvantage going there. You can, you can learn the ropes pretty quick. Um, yeah, I bet. But because they, I, they actually dressed me up as a as the UVA Cavalier for a promo. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you're the one that's on ESPN in a, in that background. <laughs> yeah. So I went to uh, we went this, the guy that actually rides the 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 horse dressed as a Cavalier is like a local guy, and we went out to his farm. And uh, I mean, he was at the time. It could be a different guy now. It was twenty right. years ago, but. Um, 
yeah, so they dressed, and I got up on the horse in his his outfit, and they showed this stuff, and I still have the pictures. Well, I'm sure that's why the Golf Channel came a calling is because you could. That was it. Yeah, yeah. they saw that and they thought we we've got to have this guy. Exactly. But uh, what was your first role when you got to the Golf Channel? So at the time we had a a UK channel. It was called Golf Channel UK, <laughs> and um, and so uh, I came to work on that, and I worked a little bit in front of the camera and a little bit behind the scenes. Um, and we were doing at the time every single LPGA event. It was airing on the Golf Channel UK. In the US, they were airing on different networks, including right. ESPN and Golf Channel, and I think you know maybe uh, another couple of networks. So, but in the UK, it all aired on the Golf Channel UK. So, so they had a studio host at the time, uh, and it was Laura Barr. Mm. Laura Barr, great Laura Barr, and so Laura posted but she was on her own and there was you know there were times where they wouldn't ESPN wouldn't come on the air at the right time because there was a game over running or something and so she would have to fill the time on her own for like 10 or 15 minutes oh gosh awful and so and so that was an opportunity for me and so literally one morning I was in my apartment and my phone rang and it was an executive at the Golf Channel called Jeff Hines, who's not there anymore. And Jeff called me and he said, look, we know you love to be on air. You, we want you to come in and do the LPGA broadcast with Laura Barr today. Can you be there at 2 o'clock? And I said, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And from that, <laughs> from that moment on, I, I was you know, sort of full-time on TV. And, and, and we did two years of, of uh, LPGA coverage with with myself and Laura Barr in the studio, and then I did uh, we did a UK Golf Central. And, really? Um, yeah, and so my now boss Ben Dawn, yep. who's the head of tournaments at Golf Channel, was the producer of Golf Central UK. So we and I was the anchor. So we worked together in my first year of Golf Channel. Um, and now we're still working together, but, um, so yeah, so it was a really great opportunity and I got to know Laura very well and we had, you know, really fun times doing these events and, and also, you know, doing Golf Central UK. So it was a really, really busy couple of years, you know, it'd be long, long days. We would do the LPJ and then sometimes I would stay on and do a whole Golf Central show and, um, but it was a, it was just great experience and I loved it. Absolutely yeah. loved it. I didn't realize that how far back you've done the LPGA. That explains why you're such yeah. such a such a knowledgeable uh, <laughs> analyst. I almost call you an analyst now for that. <laughs> but uh, the big break comes around. You enjoyed doing that, did you? That was kind of a fun show for you to do. I know you missed doing those shows, but uh, uh, what were some of your fondest experiences uh, looking back at those shows? Well, when I first started doing Big Break, you know, I was a little bit hesitant. I didn't know whether I should do it. I did, you know, it was it was, a, it was a big show on the network, and I thought, well, you know, is this gonna is this something that I should do? You know, is it gonna work for me? And uh, my agent at the time was like, absolutely, you you've got to do it. And so, so I, so I did, and it was very good advice. And um, uh, I went and uh, you know started hosting the show. And the first one we did was was it at Sandals in the Bahamas and it was uh it was a really good cast. I think Ryan O'Toole was on that show. And um and so it, it you know, I just 
got involved in a group of people that were were really really passionate about their job and the folks that worked on that show behind the scenes. It was you know about a hundred people that would travel to to each um, venue to you know to shoot the show. So there's a lot of people behind the scenes that you never obviously saw on TV. Um, and you know it took took us around the world and mm-hmm. we got. You know, we got to go to, to Ireland. We went to the Caribbean multiple times, to Mexico, and um, you know, around the U.S., the Greenbrier, for example. And it was just it. It I always felt like it was such a great reward for two weeks' work. You know, you'd put two weeks' work in, and you would get three or four months of television that would come out of it. And uh, and that doesn't happen very often in our world. You know, we work for a week at a tournament and then that's it. You know, we don't, it doesn't, you don't really, it doesn't, after you finish, there's not really much that goes on with that event. Whereas with Big Break, you would go for two weeks and then you would wait for months for it to air. And then suddenly we would do the promotion for the show and then we would, it would be on the air for several months. And you'd be thinking back, like, you know, what on earth happened in that show? I can't remember, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and sometimes we would have shot another season before the other one even aired. Wow. So, so it was, yeah, so there was a big lag period. You know, so six months would go by before we would, um, before it would end. It's the same with people who are in movies, you know, when they right. shoot a movie and then they promote the movie a year later and they're thinking, well, what happened in the movie? But um, how did you keep quiet on knowing the results? How that had to be tough. Well, because you could go to you went to prison if you were telling it. So we would, that would sign, do it. Uh, yeah, we would sign a non-disclosure, and you would. Um, yeah, it, it, it was uh, serious stuff. I mean, and remarkably, nobody nobody said anything. Um, you know, we never had an issue in all the big break. I did eleven seasons, um, and. And we never, I never had an issue. There was never an issue in any of the seasons they did where anybody said anything. And it was one of the reasons why, if you were a contestant on the show, you weren't allowed to leave when you were eliminated. Ah. And that was always the biggest issue that we had on, on these shoots. Well, what you would do with these poor people who had had this dream of winning Big Break, mm-hmm. and then it was dashed. But then they couldn't leave, so they were sequestered there, and they had to stay for for two weeks. And you know, they were on a free free vacation at that time, not necessarily with people that they would go on vacation with. Exactly. But you know, what did they do? They just sort of drink and party all day, and then we would have to <laughs> clean up the mess. You know, so there were some you know there were some interesting things that happened with contestants that were eliminated because they literally had nothing to do for two weeks. So it was a two week um, spring break. Yeah, it was a two-week spring break, and you know, sometimes bad things happen on spring break. So, so that was always that was always good gossip on the set. So what was happening with the eliminated contestants? What did they get up to yesterday? You know, exactly. Um, but who decided the competitions? Who decided the format? Kind of when they would use a certain type of competition? Did you have input on that, or was that uh, no. the producers? Yeah, it was, we had, they had a really strong production team. It was led by Jay Kostoff, who was the executive producer, and uh, Paul Schlegel, who was the director of the show. And then there were a number of other folks below them, um, the sort of five or six producers below them. And they would spend months. I mean, it was their full-time job, basically, was mm-hmm. producing the show. And they would spend months devising the the challenges. And there was so much effort put into the challenges. They would run through every scenario. They would model out what would happen. Um, a 
and there was only one time in the whole of my experience where they made a mistake on a challenge. And the best part about it was none of the contestants noticed. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, because you couldn't have it where it was unfair. Yeah. And there was one challenge they did, and I, I can't really remember the exact details, but you could have a mulligan. And, um, and then, if, and then well, the way we would choose the show is that it would never compromise the result, but we would adjust the editing to make it work. So, mm -hmm. for example, if there was a challenge where all six players were hitting and they had to hit the green for points, and they all missed the green on the first shot, we would, would that that would never air. Right. And we would then give them another chance because you don't want to, you know, it's not very good TV. No. Six players missed the green. But, but that didn't compromise the result of the challenge, you know. But at home, you wouldn't have seen the fact that they'd already hit a shot and missed the green. Um, but there was, there was only one time, one challenge. And Stephanie and I being, I was hosting with Stephanie Sparks at the time, and we, you know, were quite passionate golfers. And we, we were like, this is not fair. And we went up to um, the producer and we said, hey, you know, how he was like, relax. You know, okay, we've, we've made a mistake, but it's going to be fine. And none of the contestants have noticed. <laughs> and, he said, and don't as tell him. Is that the case? We'll be fine. I was like, okay, okay. You know. And we had a, there was a lawyer on site um, at all times and every challenge. Uh, there would be a contract and they would, the contestants would sign off on each challenge. So was, there was a lot behind the scenes about the legalities and the logistics and everything that went into it that, you know, obviously you didn't need to see it at home. Right. Um, but the union, you, know, you were not aware of how that, that played out. But yeah, there was a lot of legal, there was a legal aspect to it as well. That's fascinating. I mean, it has to be, or, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked for as long as it did. But we saw some pretty good players come out uh, of those shows uh, and even some that have won on the, uh, the professional level, uh, the higher levels. So I mean, it's been pretty, pretty successful. I think the talent got better, competition got better as the shows went on, and and it was a very successful show. And I know you miss doing that, but you know you you've, you now get on the LPGA. You're, you've kind of done a little bit of everything. You've hosted and you've worked at a whole announcer. How do you keep up with all the different tours when you kind of jump back and forth? Because you do a little bit of everything. How do you keep up with those? Uh, uh, I'm trying to get some advice for myself, but how do you get? How do you keep up with those different roles? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's knowing what you need to know, isn't it? I mean, it's it's getting the information that that is that is useful, and and you don't need to clutter your brain with with everything that that is just kind of not needed. And so, I think for me, when I'm doing an event, I mean, I you need to just focus in on the on the details that are going to be relevant that day and I think you you know you keep an, an eye on what's happening on various tours and you keep an eye on what's going on and um, all around the world of golf but um, you know when you do when I was at the the players and the Honda Classic it's a case of you know studying the players that are going to be that are going to be in contention or that are in contention or that you're going to interview or that you're going to commentate on I mean I think you know there's no need to to worry about stuff that isn't going to be relevant. And I think that, that that's kind of the key. And then just a lot of reading. And I think the, the job of being on a commentator on, on, on golf is, is fun, but there's a lot of kind of tedious, boring work that goes on behind the scenes, a lot of reading and um, studying. It's, it's sort of like doing a, a test every, um, every week. You know, mm -hmm. you've got to study up. 
and and that's the bit that it's fun sometimes, but I think that's probably the most unenjoyable part of the job is reading and reading and reading of stuff that is, may never be relevant, but there might be one, you know, there might be one line in there that um, that that is a really good nugget of information that you can use or leads to some sort of other thought that, that comes up on the broadcast. But it's sort of studying the players that you're going to see and studying the information that's going to come up and then you know, you, you kind of have that in your brain and it, it just stays there and then you, you, you have your notes and it jogs your memory and you think, oh, yeah, that, that's a really good thing to say right now. And then, then I think when you're on the air, it's the economy of words. You know, towards the end on a, on a Sunday, you don't really need to say that much. You know, mm-hmm. The drama sort of plays out. The drama plays out right there on the screen for you. You don't need somebody talking constantly every time of it. Yeah, and I think the host, uh, not that I've ever done it, but I've just watching you and Grant and, and the guys I've worked with, that, that's a lot tougher role because you do have to have those nuggets, like you said, sometimes to fill in, but it's, at the end you just be quiet and watch what finishes. But you said interviews. What are some of the keys uh, for interviews? Do you have, you know, do you have, a lot of times producer says, hey, you got two questions. You usually have to have about three. But what are some of the keys you kind of, when you're, you're doing an interview, you do a lot of sit-downs. Uh, what are some of those keys you have for to make an interview successful? I think it's the hardest job in in what we do in it's interviewing. I, I think it's a really difficult job, and I think the people that do it so well make it look very very easy. You know, Steve Sands is, mm-hmm. is excellent at what he does, and he makes it look seamless. And I think you know, having a got, again, I think it's studying. You know, you've got to have the information. You've got to have the You've got to have the information um, at hand so you can ask an intelligent question. And, you know, it's very, very difficult to go and interview a player having never seen what they shot or you know what they shot, but you didn't see a single shot in the whole round, you know. And uh, and then you've got to go and interview them like you, you know and talk to them about their round. And I think that's, that's very difficult. Shot link with the PJ tour, it makes it easier because you can look at what they did on a particular hole. You know, if they made a double bogey, they hit in the water. You know. So you can, you can, you can use that very well as an interviewer on a PJ tour. You don't, you don't have that on the LPGA and it, you know, it is very difficult, but I think having a sense of where you want to go with an interview and then listening to what they say and if mm-hmm. they say something and then following up on that, you know, why or what, you know, how, why was that or how did that happen or what, you know, and so, and, and that's, and that's, and that's key. And then if you're a golfer, if you're a young golfer that's, you know, growing up and an aspiring college player and you're, you're looking at, you know, how can you do media better and how can you get more of a personality? I mean, I think when you're being interviewed, you're the one that controls the information. And so you can give out information or you can withhold information and, you you have to make that decision, and it and it builds your brand, and it builds this your narrative, your story, the information that you want to get out there. And I think you you know if you look at recent interviews with Shen Chen Fang at the craft at the craft at the A and A information uh, A Inspiration, um, you know she talked about eating, you know, mm-hmm. and and that was kind of like one of the most memorable interviews of the week. But it was her decision to say that. And it built her narrative and it built her her brand and, and what she's like and what she's known for and what she's, you know, she's known as this really fun character and you never know what she's going to say. Well, 
you know, there is an element of, of her playing on that, I think. And, um, and so, you know, if you're somebody that just doesn't want to say anything about your private life or what's going on in your life or, you know, your golf game, then you're not going to be a great interview, but that's your decision. Um, but the, what, the players that, that give a lot in interviews are the ones that usually are, are quite, you know, popular with, with the fans. And so, um, you know, winning obviously breeds interest, but aside from that, look at Harry Higgs, you know, yeah. he's a character. He's a character and he goes on TV and he says funny things and people really like him and they really want to support him. So I think, you know, it's very, interviews are very important on both sides of the, of the role, whether you're the interviewer or the interviewee. And I think you can really control the message if you're, um, if you're being interviewed. And if you're a skilled interviewer, you can pry things out of, out of people that they don't necessarily want to say. Yeah, because uh, I've actually interviewed Harry Higgs at Bermuda, and he is quite the character. And that's great advice for the young kids, because I remember a couple years ago, uh, Cohen Trollio, uh, his son, he's the son of VJ Trollio, who wrote the book Only One Shot, but he was in the semifinals of the uh, USAM. He's 16 years old, and, and you know now he's doing interviews, and he was honest, almost too honest, and kind of got, right. got blasted about some things he said, whereas if he was a 23-year-old, they'd have thought it was fine. And I just kind of sat him aside, and I said, you know, there's certain things you can say and there's certain ways of saying it, uh, but for the young people out there, it's practice to get used to doing that because it's not something that's easy uh, when you're not prepared for that. I think he was just trying to make match play. Next thing he knows, he's in the semifinals on national TV and, and with some tough questions. But you mentioned uh, not watching the shot. Brandon Grace this year at Puerto Rico, I followed – uh, the group ahead, and I jump back to get him and in our interview him when he wins. And so you have to kind of listen on the broadcast, and you have to listen to what they say. I think that's the key. And, and for me, when I worked for USA Network, I was doing a lot of those. And then, you know, Golf Channel, I didn't really do a lot of interviews. I was doing a lot more hole announcing, and it's practice. Uh, you know, Jerry Foltz does a great job because he does it every single week. And Karen, they're out there interviewing. It makes a difference. Uh, just like if you were playing golf, you just have to be in that practice. But you've worked Solheim Cups, Olympics, uh, I just think both of those competitions have really elevated the game, especially the women's game. When we look back uh, at that finish at Glen Eagles and, and what a memorable uh, uh, win for the uh, t- Team Europe. But I think that had to really kind of spark some interest in Europe. Of course, you're from the U.K., but I think just that big win for them watching Pedersen make that putt had to be a big uh, boost in the arm for European women's golf. You would hope so. You would hope so. I mean, I think, you know, the tour over there has, has struggled, there's no doubt about it. Um, there's a big push in the UK for women's sports. And, you know, golf, for some reason, seems to get left behind a lot. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. I mean, I remember interviewing Georgia Hall uh, after the year after she won or the year that she won the AIG Women's Open. And we were at an event at the end of the year and we were talking about um, her season and she had been uh, honored with an award uh, back home um, with, I think, some Olympic athletes. And, and, you know, she said, oh, it was amazing to be there with them and, you know, and, and to, to, to be part of that. And I joked with her, I said, well, you know, you are a major champion. You probably made a lot more money than they did, you know. And, <laughs> and... And it kind of struck me, like, yeah, you know, the, the, the best uh, women golfers in the world, they just 
for some reason, the, the sport doesn't get enough coverage in the UK, whereas other sports, uh, women's sports, are starting to get better coverage. Women's football, for example, uh, you know, as you say, soccer, um, is starting to get better coverage. And, um, you know, obviously athletics, uh, track and field, this, this gets good coverage in an Olympic year. Um, but those players are not making a huge amount of money. You know, there isn't this this um, this system, you know, for for, for for making a lucrative career out of that. Um, tennis obviously does well, um, but golf has a, you know, has a tour, a solid tour that is kind of global in the LPGA, mm-hmm. but yet there isn't, there isn't the publicity back home. You know, Karen Stuckles winning the AIG Women's Open, Georgia Hall winning the AIG Women's Open. If a British woman had won Wimbledon, it would be massive. You know, right. It would be a massive story. It would be all over newspapers. You know, in golf, that happens. It doesn't really get the coverage that it deserves anywhere near that it deserves. So, so I, you know, I don't know why that is. I don't, you know, I don't know how that changes, but I hope that it does. Um, and I hope that moments like Suzanne Pedersen making the putt um, do draw a lot of interest. I think they, I think it helps, obviously. But, you know, there is an issue in, in sport that, you know, the women don't get the recognition that they deserve. They don't get the publicity that they deserve. I don't know whether it's a, you know, um, sort of historic prejudice. I don't know. I think it, um, but having worked on the, on the tour and been around these players, I mean, they're just incredible athletes and, and golfers and, you know, every bit as good as the men, you know, they may, some of them may not hit it as far as the men. They may not be as powerful as the men, but, you know, they're every good, every bit is good. And so, um, so it's a great shame. And I think hopefully over the course of time, it will change. And, you know, with what's happening in the women's game and the power game that has suddenly appeared with Paddy Tabataniket uh, being able to do it on a, on a world stage and, you know, hit the ball a long way and actually score at the same time, you know, that will breed some interest, I think. So, We'll see. I mean, we've got very good players in the UK. You know, we've got major champions in the UK, but um, the interest is, is just is not there like it should be. Yeah, you mentioned Patty. I followed her Friday coming in the last nine holes, and man, some of the drives, I was like, man, I'd have to get on one of those. I mean, the way it flew, the way it came off the club, I mean, uh, you know, Aria, you know, just Jutanagarn, I mean, some of her drives, but this was different. This was a different look, a different sound. She works with Grant Waite, who was always an incredible ball striker, but she had the entire game, uh, you know, not just hitting it long, as you said. She hit it straight. She had a great short game, and, and she walked away uh, a major champion, and she's a star in the making. And and I agree. I, I, I get out there, the, the five or six events I get to work on the LPGA, and I'm just amazed at just how good these, these women are, the, the ability to control the ball, uh, just they're very good. They're fun to watch. They're very uh, approachable, and it's uh, the state of the LPGA is in pretty good hands right now. So uh, it was a lot of fun watching her just those nine holes and just to see uh, a star in the making uh, without any question about it. But what's up next for you? Uh, I know you've got a big uh, some big golf matches while you're off, so I, I don't want to get in the way of that. But what's uh, your next uh, TV gig? So I'm going to do the Lotte Championship. Um with, you know, LPJ going to Hawaii, and then uh, the week after that, uh, it's the huge LA premier LA Open on the LPGA at Wilshire Country Club. So it's two nice weeks. Um, I think, you know, it's difficult at the moment without without fans, and I think that's, um, 
that, that that's a really tough time for the LPGA. You've got on the men's side, fans are coming back. There's atmosphere at the events, and I think that that's really missing from from the LPGA. It's a bit more difficult with with states that they are playing in. Hawaii and California have been, you know, strict, but um, we're getting back to the point where you know we can have fans, and I you know, I don't think it's going to happen in Hawaii. And I don't. I, believe it's not going to happen in California unless something changes. So that, to me, is a great shame. I mean, I think, you know, that there just wasn't the same atmosphere for Patty, obviously, winning the A&A that there should have been. Um, the LPGA then takes uh, a, a trip to Asia, which I'm, I'm not going to go over there and work those events. So I've got a little time off. And then the tour will come back and play um, at the Pure Silk Championship at Kingsmill in Virginia, and we understand there will be fans at that event in May, in mid-May, uh, starting the week of uh, May 17th. And that will be a big difference. I think it'll be great to see people back. I think people are desperate to come back and watch. I mean, if you saw, you know, the A&E Inspiration, people were standing out, out of bounds of the golf course to watch. And, you know, the Kia Classic, people were standing behind the gates on the street so they could watch. I mean, I think the same thing will happen um, in L.A. If they don't allow anybody on site, I think we'll see people... <laughs> You know, on Wilshire Boulevard, like w- looking through the fence. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think, you know, I, I, it, to me, it's a point now where we've got to take some risk. And, um, you know, that it worked at the, at the players, it worked at the Honda, and people were wearing their masks. You know, I was at those events, so I saw it firsthand. You know, there were mask police out there making sure people, you know, had their masks on the whole time. And if, if that's the rule, then. You know, that's the way to do it. But to not have any fans now is, I think, really hurting the LPGA. And, you know, it's difficult because there are rules in place and, and tournament directors can't just decide they want fans there without the approval of local authorities. So it's not just a case of saying, you know, let's do it. Um, right. But I think, you know, I, I, I think that's a, that's something that, that is really a, a tough tough issue for the LPGA. And I think the players deserve to have some atmosphere now and that they have to have people there and um and i think we're you know i think it's going to be very difficult when the tour goes back to the west coast if you look at the lpga they're going to play the u.s women's open and in san francisco at the olympic club and then they're going to play in another lpga event the next week there at um at lake merced the uh, medahill championship and you know, I, I don't know what the rule, what the plans are, but it, you know, from everything we read, it looks like there aren't going to be fans there, which is such a great shame. I mean, these, these are wonderful golf courses, and uh, I think you know, people in in that city who, who love the game, and there are so many wonderful courses around San Francisco. You know, they deserve to be able to go out and watch the best players in the world on on those golf courses in a, in a safe way, and it, it seems like we can do it in a safe way. So. You know, I think that's a great change, Jim, and I really hope that um, you know we can we can trust people to be responsible and uh, and be safe at these at these golf tournaments, and um, hopefully we'll have fans soon. But uh, you know, I, I, that that to me is a bit disappointing. All right, buddy. Thank you. Always great to be with you.